Welcome, Joseph. Thanks for having me on. So we both agreed that we have no idea what we're going to talk about today. But uh, based on the chat in the last 15 minutes, I can definitely feel the um, excited energy of stuff coming, which it always does uh, when we talk. We've been talking for a while now, kind of like conversation partners or something like that, maybe something cooler sounding. But um, I thought a good place to start might just be like the nature of how this event has come about because I think it says a lot about like how we met about the circumstance of where we're at and what's transpiring in these like kind of emergent community conversation spaces. Um, I don't know. Do you want to kick it off or should I? Sure. Okay. So yeah, like how did we come to be where we are right now? <laughs> um, well, I can tell I can tell my side of the story in quite a lot of detail. Um, and I'm sure you can tell your side of the story in a lot of detail. Um, so maybe we could do that uh, and see where those stories converge. Co-creation, I think, is uh, neither of our memories of the events are the complete story, I guess. So mm. We both had different pieces of the puzzle of the landscape, and then we're trying to sort of paint an image of, of the significance of it. Yeah, okay, so maybe I'll start with there's so many places I could start, but maybe I'll start with um, this sort of ongoing, not clearly defined search of a intellectual, philosophical, but also a spiritual nature that I've been on for probably about four years now, um, following my break with the Christianity that I grew up in. I feel like I, it, at that moment of breaking with Christianity, there was a something of a, like an intellectual awakening, like something opened up in me. Um, and I was very, I was very open about that whole experience on social media on Facebook primarily in which many members of my Christian community, my home, not just my hometown community, but also extended family and friends 
family friends um, were observing that process and occasionally, you know, interacting with me during that process. And one of the questions that would come up was, how do you define right and wrong without God? And there's a way of looking at that that seems a bit silly. Like it, it makes the question look a bit silly. Um, and I sort of saw it as a silly question. Like, are you suggesting that the only reason you're not raping and pillaging and murdering and all of the horrible things <laughs> Uh, you know, to the people around you, the only reason you're not doing that is because you believe propositionally that the creator of the universe has commanded you not to. Something didn't quite seem right about that. But there's a deeper, deeper, um, there's a deeper way of of engaging with that question and taking that question seriously. And at the time, I don't think I really understood the full significance of that question. I know I did not understand the full significance of that question, but I decided I'm going to take it seriously if for no other reason that I, I just, uh, I'll have an answer to give. So I thought I'll write a blog post in answer to this question, how do I define, like, what, how do I discern right from wrong in the absence of God? Which turns out to be one hell of a question. <laughs> <laughs> kind of epic. It's like Martin Luther's 95 theses on the door. Thesis. Yeah. Thesis, just to clarify. Yeah. So I started out with this notion of needing to define some sort of goal by which to evaluate right and wrong. Like right for what purpose? Wrong for what purpose? Good for what end? Bad for what end? Without that, you can't say what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad. So it was the question of what is that goal that's at the top of our hierarchy of goals. And I, you know, I called it the end goal. What is the end goal? Um, and I didn't even immediately establish what sort of a, what, what level of, um, at what level I was referring to in terms of the, the systems I was talking about, like a goal for whom or what. I didn't even say anything about that at first, but I ran into that problem. Like I can talk about a goal for me, a goal for you, a goal for the people around me? Like, am I talking about for all of humanity, for all of nature, 
animals, you know, what, what am I talking about here? And so it got into this question of where is the boundary between one system and another in terms of the goal, the goals that they have and ultimately what's the, what's that end goal. Um, so just to, just to bring this down to maybe a more, um, well, okay. So I'll touch, I got into, I, I read Richard Dawkins book, selfish gene, which actually turns out to be really relevant to this question because for Richard Dawkins, it's all about the propagation, like each gene, that's the level of analysis he's looking at is the level of the gene. And the question of the end goal comes down to what's the goal of the gene and it's to propagate itself into the next generation. But there was something I, I, I soon saw that there wasn't, there was something overly reductive about that because like, wait a second, the way that a gene expresses itself in the, the emergent phenotype depends on the other genes. There's, a, there's an interplay here, an interconnectedness. And, and we also know that the, the way that genes express themselves depend on environmental factors. So it's not just, you know, there's both this, this bottom-up emergence and this top-down emanation of that that that's defining the the um, well anyway it's 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 it goes both ways so it's like the 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 causal the causal chain comes both from the bottom up and simultaneously from the top down. Mm. It sounds like you're, you know, atheistic track, let's say, actually led you into some very deep metaphysical, uh, philosophical questions just within like the Dawkins thought process. Like, yeah that you kind of began to become oriented towards a process philosophy or something like that but then i'm also feeling hey there's some kind of christian flavors here you know there's some continuities of what you're talking about emergence and imminence that we could perhaps unwrap in a christianese kind of language of you know the um the god of above and the spirit of below or whatever other kind of orientation yeah but i didn't see it that way like i i didn't the the christian grammar was not was not a part of the that pr process for me at that point um it's only been later that I've sort of 
seen the 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 patterns become infused with that that you know the christian flavor again it's like it's like the there's there's a there's been a renewal for me of that grammar um But at the time, it was very much a um, a search. I don't want to say like a, a, a sign. I was trying to find something. Like, where do I root? I've, I've lost God, Christianity. Where's my, where's my foundation of truth? I was wrong before. How do I make sure I'm not wrong again? Sort of the question. So science was a big thing. Like, okay, well, well, science sort of is is um, the progress of science speaks to its own validity, but. I, I increasingly came to see Allah, maybe Jordan Peterson and the intellectual dark web from there, that whole circle uh, that well, I guess I guess it's the problem. It's the problem that arises when you take the observer out of the observed systems. Because that's what science has to do, is it has to take the observer out of what's being observed. Um, How to that effectively works. describe beauty is right. a problem. And perhaps one of the one of those big issues that the Darwinists couldn't quite um, account for. You know, you can talk about the adaptive viability of a beautiful woman or a beautiful rainforest, um, but that doesn't quite get to the crux of the experience of it. Um, but if I can throw like another layer on top of the map that you're drawing of like the meta uh, circumstance that I feel like I moved through and actually a lot of people are moving through right now is okay so the intellectual dark web coming out of the new atheist movement broadening it bringing in many perspectives but basically rebirthing dialogue um, between a collection right. of renegades and charismatic individuals. That was the breakaway from accepted, inherited knowledge, being relationship to religion, church, the religiosity of your parents, but also the religion of the blue church, which is the which is the carrying over of that relationship to authority into our relationship to media, 
and governance structures and centralized bureaucracies, things like the BBC um, being perhaps the most pristine and trusted example of this. Um, so the IDW is the breakaway from that. But then there's another stage, you know? So we're still kind of, we've broken away to renegades and this group of intellectuals, Douglas Murray, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, Weinstein, and so forth, all with a very wide range of ideas, all talking to one another. But it was still them doing the talking and them being the experts. Mm. And so the if you're looking at it like a kind of a branching pattern, it's like they're up here and we're all sort of downstream, you know, down on the branches. But we as the kind of the roots of this are not talking to each other so much. So that's when this next phase comes in of like rebel wisdom and the stoa and you know not so much the sort of brand of that but the spirit that caused people to constellate around this thing called sense making and um the kind of resurgence of philosophy and self sort of aspiration towards integration and spiritual development as important in life. Um, all of those things cause this constellation at places like the Stoa, um, set up during COVID, of course, when everybody is even more um, isolated and everyone becomes like in their own home. And in effect, also much more vulnerable to the chaos that's coming out of the media ecology and the institutional breakdown and all of that, like that's going on. And then COVID separates us more and makes us more vulnerable and tagging on this thing from Hannah Arendt that I didn't fully read admittedly, but it, it resonated when I heard it, which was that people's, people's societies who are isolated are more prone to totalitarianism. Hmm. Um, and this maps onto my uh, sort of inquiry into the nature of like Chinese communism, um, where the family structure was very tight knit, but there was no real civil society. So everybody was separated and made it very easy to make it kind of all of us separate nodes in relationship to a godlike state. And so we're really in an effort, I guess. We're not necessarily conscious of what we're in, but we are in something that has brought us together in these contexts where it's like, okay, you know, I'm interested in this thinker and you're interested in that thinker, but actually what's going to happen is we're going to cultivate the horizontal aspect of this, you know? It's like you, you know, Sam Harris is up here, Jordan Peterson's up here, and then down here there's us. But what happens when we start all talking to one another? Now you've got like a really complex, um, you know, better with scientific language. So you can probably think of the name for the kind of shape, um, like a tetrahedron or something. But um, so that's... 
that's the that's the layer that I want to add to it. So yeah, that was we have like your personal journey, and then we have the meta story. And the more that we can bring those into the actual same reality that they are, the more interesting things I think we'll get. Yeah, that was that was beautifully beautifully laid out. It was like I was. Yeah, I'm seeing, seeing the continuity between my own journey and then how this is meeting up with your journey. We're coming together in these spaces and increased participation. Because for the feels like for the, for the past however many four years on this journey, it's like I've been observing. I'm on my own individual journey observing these sort of things emerge and, and these conversations taking place in the intellectual dark web and, and increasingly there's this sense of actually participating and being involved in those conversations. Um, br bridging between the, the individual journey that I'm on and the the collective the collective journey um and there's like there's something that that does that sort of continuity within myself that 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 does something that's that's important um anyway i thought that was that was a really really good uh way of tying this tying this together um so thank you um so yeah i'm i'm not sure where to um where to continue from here yeah i feel that too but not from uh, not from any shortage of areas to talk about. Just feeling like, wouldn't it be cool if? I feel like we're busting open like a fourth wall of the of the podcast by just like actually not feeling that we're captured by the momentum of it, and we're actually just hanging out in a way which is what we usually do on our calls. So, mm -hmm. and I think what characterizes our conversations is like the total absence of pressure to get anywhere or any particular objective. Well, I'm noticing, I, I feel a little of that pressure right now. Just because we're, we're doing a podcast right now. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a there's an element with that pressure there's an element of fear of like are we is this making sense is there a coherence to this conversation um are we on the right track <laughs> um So
there's been so many things circulating for me. I guess I'll start with, so I'm talking to you privately. We meet through the STOA, right? We're on a call at the STOA. It's a collective um, circling kind of event where people just show up on this call and Rhea is a very experienced facilitator, but the culture of these spaces is kind of understood, but non-explicit. And there's a real culture of just like pausing, allowing what wants to emerge, um, not pushing any direction of it. And it's really actually just about people showing up where they are precisely in that moment in their lives, which somehow is a generator function for intimacy, connection, like emotion, like I've seen people have real like emotional relief and release in the context of these calls that actually they can't have in other collective spaces. So the emotional, um, the personal, the vulnerable, the, the not knowing, the not quite sure, all of that has been sidelined by the culture of the blue church expert situation into the private sphere where it actually is in our actual lives with our families girlfriends, friends, and so forth. And it would seem kind of strange if you and I were to somehow strongly deviate from that and try and do something totally different in the context of this because it's online. Um, like, I guess it's kind of like, this phenomenon that is us having this conversation feels like right on the mark of where I am with sense base and where I am with like the philosophical conceptual, non-conceptual work that I'm doing around that. Like all of it is tending towards integration. Mm. And through this, I mean, I've been in the, you know, fire of my own life circumstance for a good year or so. But I would say in the last few weeks or so, there's been like a new phase, I guess, of integration and letting go of things that are like holding me back, I guess. And so, So I had like my Instagram was over here with like my art and like my more like personal and like nature and different things. And then I have my Facebook, which was more like, oh, there's so many public people on here. So I have to behave differently here. And then there was my Twitter, which was like, you know, politics and sense making kind of communities. And um, after this trip that I had a few weeks ago, it just like, like, oh, this is actually an artificial landscape of fragmentation. And what I, my aim should be to 
create as much like clarity and coherence of signal into every single space. And so now I like cross pollinating, even at the risk of being taken less seriously, perhaps. Like, I feel like if it was a few months back, if I had made songs and put them on SoundCloud, I would not have thrown them out on my Twitter to all of the people that I want to take me seriously in the sense making scene. But then it was like, oh, I'm actually trying to change what that is to be more in line with who I am right now. And then more power to me because I'm actually getting to show up with what I'm doing and where I'm at, which is music becoming far more important than mm. anything else somehow. Mm. That, oh man, there's, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, oh man, that is, that is just, that's beautiful, first of all. Um, and, and, yeah, the, the, I feel the same. I have these different sort of compartments of my life where it's like, Oh, I'm this person in this context. I'm this person in this context, in this context. And I'm noticing that affect the conversation right now. Cause it's like, this is, this is a public conversation. Mm. This is going out to certain people that I have in mind, mm -hmm. you know, and then, in the context of my relationships with those people, I'm a certain person and I have to look a certain way. And there's like this very strong tendency to bullshit myself because of that. Um, and I, even if you, you could frame it, it's like blue church versus whatever this thing is that's been emerging in, in the stoa and these sort of, online emergent communities is the it's exactly what you were drawing out which is like i'm i'm talking about what's going on for me presently like i'm trying to i'm trying to get at my own desire to bullshit right now and and appear a certain way um, and even in the act of doing this, there's some bullshitting involved because it's, it's just inevitable that there's, um, that I'm, um, it's inevitable that I'm going to be curating to some degree how I'm, uh, how I'm coming across, um, But it's, but I just, I, I'm, I'm just noticing that, that, um, I feel like we're having, we have the most like self-aware conversations, but it's not the crippling self-awareness. It's like a very generative, creative kind of meta. It somehow is the platform that affords us to like continually make these moves to different layers 
of what's going on and drop back down. Like we don't separate like our conversations about the meaning crisis or Christianity from the somatic like experience that we're having. Like I've talked to you about like how there'll be different kind of players um, in the space. And I do feel it's important for me to actually express like what comes up for me, <laughs> like my own somatic intuition, I guess, energetically when I look at somebody, spend a lot of time observing them through the virtual medium. Um, that's information as much as all of these things I've read in books and heard in conversations. And part of the effort of integration um, is to bring all of those things to bear. And it's like, I, we, I feel like there was a sense of momentum coming into this that we're gonna like crack open the whole nutshell of the role of Christianity and kind of responding to it and integrating it and going beyond it and all of this stuff. But actually there's something in the game that we're playing, which is actually the um, distilled essence of what it is we're trying to do in that, you know, responding to it. Mm. Mm, yeah is not quite arriving and oh, there was something you said really early on i think i've lost the fragment but it will come back around the sense of goals right so when you started out with your scientific uh journey there was an attempt to replace the end goal or end point or end justification that God provided with a new scientific one. Um, and what came up for me then was like, oh, that's actually like so consistent with the narrative temporal orientation of Christian thinking. Mm. It's like, there's so much of this framework of like timeline, like the timeline of the Jews through to Jesus and then the new faith. Linear, it's linearity. Uh, to, yeah. Um, you know, judgment day or whatever it is, but there's always an end point and a kind of beginning point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to, I want to draw out something that I'm noticing about myself as we're talking. There's a, there's like, I'm here, but then I'm also like, okay, now let's get to the conversation, which is very interesting because we're having the conversation mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. but there's some sense of like, okay, but wait, this isn't like the, there was a different conversation we wanted to have like an impatience and this desire to force something that's, that's not yet ready to, to be said. Like there's, there's something we're settling in here. We're working things out. And I'm like, 
I'm like dealing with that tension right now of like, mm. like just letting, letting go of the, whatever expectations that I was probably unaware of coming into this, of what we were going to be talking about. Wow. That's kind of ecstatic. Like as you're describing it, I was like, oh, I actually felt some physiological relief come out of mm. me because I realized like, I mean, that's actually the orientation in life that I would like to have, right? is to let go of the perpetual concern about uh, expectations. How am I going to uh, reconcile making money with being who I am creatively? Um, this is like the most recurrent one for me because I've, I'm in the position of having left a job and not moved into the new thing yeah so but then there's this other state of being able to let go of that which is just immensely relieving to me um But is that state a state of arrival? Have we then arrived somewhere in some way in the same way that the Christians, you know, are so mm. oriented towards the arrival? Is arriving at not knowing and letting go of what's coming the kind of relief or spiritual relief? that we are attaining in these spaces and in these conversations. Like Guy and John are always like recently talking about like no thingness. That sort of ecstatic no thingness that you can experience um, through dialogue, through dialogos. That we can actually presence that but the way that we presence it is by letting all the other things get out of the way um but how do we let them go without acknowledging that they're there and in order to hear those things that are present but not known to us, I think we have to be listening for something that we don't know. That we're listening for not knowing in order to afford the, the space in our consciousness of the thing that we don't yet know to arise. And so, this has been much of what I've been trying to sort of articulate and develop uh, over the last couple of months under this notion of a meta practitioner, which was kind of an attempt with me and my girlfriend to come up with 
an appropriate name for what it is that I'm trying to do. Being in the unique position of actually getting to do that because I have total agency over this thing, this beingness that's expressed through sense space. So I labored and labored at this term, which was a beautiful term for me. And I was really attracted to the mimetic potential of it to put it out and to contribute something that would be of use to the conversation that people could, you know, aspire to both be and be becoming towards. Um, But what I realized in the struggle of that um, was that I was becoming attached to it. And I was so self-aware about the process of the articulation of this meme that I got to a point a week or two ago where like I just one day I just woke up and I was like, I just let it go completely. Hmm. And I had changed all of my social media to say meta practitioner. And I changed it to conversational artist, which was much more like open and accessible. And then I made this move or it just felt naturally right in light of so much uh, like John Vivekis work and the whole space that he's plugged into that we're paying attention to of like dialectic being so foundational to reality um like dialectic being the generative horizon of being in the world up and down the ladder and we can Mm. explore this for until the end of time um (laughs) because that i'm beginning to get a sense that that is I don't know if it should be articulated as a proposition, but that is the, that is the, that's become kind of the bedrock. The, the bottomless bedrock for me is dialectic and dialogos as the creative outflowing of dialectic, but not just between you and me, between genes and memes and, mm. um, mm-hmm. In breath, out breath, you know, you can kind of calculate much of the Eastern uh, Buddhist orientation in this somehow as well. The whole like duality of being and nothingness and no self, and how do you get to be no self without becoming everything else and all of that. So now I don't feel the need to like come in and be like, here's my presentation as presenting myself as a new part of the expert class. And now I can finally attain whatever it was that I thought I was going to attain looking at all these um, guys that I used to really admire and follow. And 
I don't want that as much anymore. And I'm realizing through the sagely example of John that dialectic can be the, the end point and it doesn't really matter and you know playfully using the word endpoint but it doesn't matter where we um are if we can meet other people in the um fellowship of the dialogos and the dialectic i keep switching the words i haven't settled on one um And just leaving it open like that. And so I bring, I'm now bringing this term, this meme to bear in these conversations. And I'm saying, let's talk about what it might be together. Because I'm not, you know, much like the best, um, you know, the Declaration of Independence or something. I don't know. I think many of these great texts had many hands in them. And so too with these memes, like the process of gathering and articulating the memes, I think wants to somehow be reflective of the coming together and the self-organizing um, emergence in this space and the way that it's manifesting in between people as this kind of spirit of not knowing, intimate, intuitive dialogue. And I will say that this is a, this does feel like a very unusual conversation for me. Like it does feel like we're doing something slightly different to what I've done before. Because usually I come in with a lot of like, you know, I do my best to let go of everything that I want to talk about, want to say, want to come out of my conversation with this big name person in order to then be more present for it. But now I feel I've almost let go of the conversation so completely that I have no, I'm just very satisfied with this very, it feels like taking a leisurely sort of walk, mm. you know, through, mm. through the hillside or something. Mm. Like we could be walking for hours and hours. We don't have any sharp uh, endpoint. Hmm. Yeah, that that image of a leisurely stroll, a leisurely stroll along the hillside. I felt a just like a real friendship in that image, like like a real, but but just like a. like the kind of the kind of friendship where no words need to be said 
Yeah. Well, you are a good friend, Joseph. And I think the experiment that we're running called our friendship is somehow very important to the thing that we're calling our endeavor or our mission or the thing that we're all wrapped up in collectively. This community, um, I think, must rest on unique and meaningful friendship. Mm. It mustn't rest upon a collective culture or set of beliefs that we can sign on to and in so doing attain a sense of community with a group of people simply by performing the acts and words. And of course there is a balancing here, you know, we kind of met in a context that was communal and there are certain principles to that culture but nobody came in there uh, with a set ideological orientation, with a set lifestyle orientation, um, with a set of metaphysics or beliefs about spirit or God or any of that stuff. And this is somehow like, you know, I'm seeing the way that it's kind of playfully doing Christianity better than Christianity. Uh, mm. Even so sort of ephemeral at this point, because it's, you know, it's popped up in the virtual space in the past year for most of us. Um, show up, be kind, be oriented towards your betterment and the betterment of others and understanding those is the same thing hopefully eventually and that's it that's that's the foundation what comes out of it what creative energy then emerges we have no control over and the church has always really you know been characterized by a spirit of acceptance it's a big open-armed hug bringing you in but what is it bringing you in to? Is it bringing you into becoming yourself, becoming who you might become, and then letting you go? Or is it bringing you into an institution, the church, the community from which you're gonna stay? hopefully, and hopefully that community is gonna grow as well. There's gonna be a growth of it. Um, and this community is gonna rest upon your shared commitment to certain propositions or precepts, ways of speaking, things that aren't questioned, behaviors that aren't sanctioned,
understandings of God or spirituality. So there's a word that's coming up for me again and again that's actually it's actually related to the to the the conversation i was expecting to have so i'm like seeing a a connection there between what's emerging here and and sort of my expectations for this conversation and what was sort of alive for me in the days leading up for up to this conversation and the word is idolatry and there was something you said you said like these emergent communities are doing Christianity better than Christianity is doing Christianity, which was just like, I, I want to be careful because there's a, there's like a hubris in that. And I, <laughs> I, there's a, there's a way of hearing that that sounds really off. There's also a, an experience I've had that, that speaks to that, you know, experiences I've had that speaks to the truth of that. But the, the, the question is what is Christianity doing that's making it do Christianity poorly? What is it that time and again organized communities fall prey to that brings them out of alignment with the logos? And it's, and it's the perennial problem of idolatry. And there was something Jordan Hall said in his conversation with John Verveke, um, one of the two re most recent conversations, I don't remember which, and I was already thinking it before he said it explicitly. And he said, narrative is idolatry. But, but here's the tricky thing is that you can make an idol out of this dialogos thing as well. You can make a, an idol out of the conversational artistry that you're engaged in. And it was like you were talking about how you almost started to do that with this meta practitioner label. It was like, this is a thing I am. And you, you know, became, it became too fixed of a thing and too, you, you were too attached to it. And, and there's something about the, the label of conversational artist that 
has there's a there's more humility in it and there's more of a a sense for some for whatever reason and this could be you know this could vary from person to person but for whatever reason for you you were less prone to idolatrize that term conversational artist over the term meta practitioner. And I think the, you have to, you have to be aware of that, of the, that, that anything can be turned into an idol, including God himself. Slaying that. Nearly <laughs> <laughs> a bombshell land. <laughs> Holy shit. That so this is I mean, yeah, so there is so just just for me, especially with my whole four-year track on delving into Islam and the kind of cultural binary there, the metaphysical theological binaries always running between monotheism and polytheism polytheism being very strongly associated with idolatry making an idolatry idol an idol other than god mm -hmm. and so this notion that god can become an idol is just like devastating to that whole <laughs> that whole bedrock of a lot of people's um psycho-spiritual stability, I guess, is resting upon this, this clear-cut division. Um, and what we're doing is like, you know, we're really blurring the lines a little bit when we say, okay, an idol is that which deviates from God. And maybe we can get into what God is if we've got a few million years to talk God can become an idol as well. That's why God has to die in Christianity, maybe. God, God himself has to die and be reborn because God is taking part in that. The, the thing about the issue with idolatry is it's taking something. Mm. And mm. and very interesting. Fixing it and saying this is eternal and will never die. Mm. So when you said God has to die in Christianity, my first thought was the death of God, as in, you know, what Nietzsche articulates in the nineteenth yeah. century, the last four hundred, however long timeline, but the sort of late stage death of God. But then you made this move where it was like, actually, Christ embodied imminent God has to die on the cross. And that somehow is also showing the the it's like a, a non eternality of that God, I guess, in a way for that God to die. And this is giving me a sense that like, 
the fixedness of the notion of eternity or of God or of God in relationship to eternity itself becomes a limitation on the potentiality of that compared to a genuine felt state of no thingness, which you might drop into or um, my favorite phrase from Terence McKenna, the primacy of experience. Hmm. So this is beautiful because we're like pirouetting in and out of the thing that I was trying to synthesize under the meta practitioner, which is like, okay, so Zach talks about trans narrative, becoming a trans narrative, trans paradigmatic being a kind of shamanic individual who can move between culture tribes and political tribes and metaphysical tribe without being totally off them and who can switch, you know, I can switch between different narrative structures. But then there's this other move that's the move away from narrative altogether. Right? This is the admission that narrative itself becomes the idol that we're holding on to. Like the idol is like, you know, something that you can kind of clasp and hold up in the air and wave to everybody else. Like, I've got the thing. It's right here. It's this golden calf. It's this altarpiece. It's this, um, this prophet, whatever it is. There's a move from that narrative idolatry to the, the non-narrative, the, the state which cannot be encapsulated in narrative, which I'm going to call direct experience. And so the meta-practitioner, as I would propose, he or they, she, whatever to be, is not only trans-narrative in a shamanic sense, but also periodically in dialectic between experience and narrative. Yes. Experience being that which it cannot be encapsulated within narrative. So I go into direct experience. Hopefully I can achieve that through my day-to-day sobriety, but with a more rigid mind, it might require LSD or something of that nature to, to initially encounter what is meant by the primacy of direct experience. The sort of rich, uh, ego-dissolving, ever-expanding territory that we walk through every day without perceiving but then we can't dwell there forever because we're not gods. We live in a somewhat material landscape that we have to move through. And we have this like whole thing going back to sitting around the campfire, beginning with song and from song, perhaps moving then into story and from story into written text and from written text into Abraham and Ibrahim and 
Jesus being a kind of revolutionary counter movement inside of that, I guess, Christianity being like a, like a perpetual revolutionary state within the Judeo-Christian uh, lineage. And then the death of that narrative after 2000 years, roughly. And then the arrival at the state of, oh, there's a multiplicity of narratives now, right? We've gone postmodern. There's Christianity, but there's also Islam and Buddhism and left and right and a woman's perspective and a man's perspective. And yet somehow there's like a lack of, like there's a fragmentation in that and there's a lack of center of, like there's a certain relativism which seems to give rise to like dishonesty um, or lack of relationship to direct experience because I can adopt the postmodern understanding and articulate it very well without really understanding my own life Mm. what I've actually experienced or going mm. through the phases of development. So we're sitting on the cusp of that. We highly uh, developed primates are sitting on the cusp of that whole process. And we've broken out of the chains of the expert authority relationship, at least for now. And I bring back something far more archaic of the circle of the campfire circle, right? Mm. So what this is, this is what we're doing right now. I'm going to talk to John. John is an expert and he's earned his teacherly authority. But if I'm being truthfully integrated with the, the metaphysical uh, interrelationship understanding that we're getting at, this conversation is totally in dialogue with that. It's of exactly the same importance. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. What was that? Where has my monologue left us? Ooh. Um... The death of God, it was interesting. The way you said it was exactly, you drew the connection between Nietzsche pronouncing the death of God and the death of God in Christianity, in the passion story. And it was the exact same connection I've been thinking about and that I, I, was, I wanted to get to when I was talking to Paul. Um, but we just didn't have the time to, to, to develop, um, that conversation. 
there was something else you said about the dialectic between narrative and experience. I've been sort of thinking about it as the dialectic between narrative and dialectic. Mm -hmm. So that you're, you're not making an idol out of either one. You can make a narrative out of, you can make an idol out of narrative, but you can also make an idol out of dialectic if it stultifies at the, if it, it, it stultifies at the propositional level. Um, at least that's sort of, sort of how I've seen idolatry taking form is you, you frame it propositionally and you say, look, I found the thing. This is, you know, this is the thing we've all been looking for. Come join me, follow me, uh, follow this thing. And, but you're not actually practicing what it is you're holding up as the thing to be practicing. And this is, this is why Christianity can be, can be bad at doing Christianity because being, being, let's see. There's something so profound about the idea that God dies in Christianity. It's like, it's like a gesture of this is, this is, it's like the, the God is the, the, the real God is in the, the process of following what God does in the Christian story, which is, which is to die and be reborn. Um, but we're talking about narrative here. We're talking about the, the, the Christian narrative. And this is something Jonathan Pajot brought up in the, one of the conversations about narrative and dialectic that he had with Paul and John, which was, but the narrative is the breakdown of the narrative, which I thought was just genius and also sort of like a cop-out at the same time. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well observed. It's right on the edge. It's like, it somehow feels as if it's gotten right to the edge of the internal paradox or something. Mm-hmm. But is it making music? Hmm. You reach the recognition that the brilliance somehow nested, which by the way is emergent for me in the last 30 minutes, 
in a way that it hasn't been at any point before. But the brilliance nested in that death of God. The end of the breakdown of narrative being the narrative itself, which has this perpetually revolving uh, element. Tom Holland talks about Christianity as in perpetual revolution against itself throughout history. But there's this move that I don't see people making for the most part, unless they've both not just deconstructed and reconstructed, as Paul was saying, but entered as a state of ecstasis in experience, which utterly obliterates narrative of Christianity. Like, you know, I was walking around in Athens for three months during COVID and I was hanging out a little bit by the Agora and the Parthenon. And I observed how in the sort of foothills around the base of the Parthenon, you know, you see the ancient Greek temples. I'm not great with archeology, span but I would say, you know, 3000 BC. So 5,000 years old, perhaps, um, might be totally wrong with that. And then you have churches from 900 AD, which is so far back for us. But in the context of walking through that, I had the sense of like, oh, there was this whole thing before Christian meme arrived, before that came online. And then that, you know, that Greek temple, that 3000 BC, whatever it was, that's actually so late in the story of humanity and being emerging out of the creative forces of nature. It's like a very late stage mimetic organizing thing where we built these beautiful man-made structures and somehow imbibed them with the essence of the divine. But in so doing, suggesting that it's in there, or behind the velvet curtain. Um, mm -hmm. And so here we have another Christian metaphor, the tearing of the curtain in the temple. Mm. God is no longer confined to the temple. But 2,000 years on and death of God aside, people still are finding themselves between the temple and the narrative or potentially facing a meaning crisis, a sense of isolation and a lack of the fulfillment of the embodied meaning of human beingness in its fullest. So I see a guy like Terence McKenna is actually one in a series of individuals who have somehow transcended this uh, 
and you know there's issues with Terence as well, of course, but who have transcended this narrative place and broken out into the raw creative forces of being and then dropped back into narrative and then dropped back out. And they've been in this dialectic between being and narrative, being and narrative, such that the flow of the narrative itself begins to become imbued with the rhythm of being. And so then mm. Nietzsche in his magnum opus Zarathustra takes Christianity and somehow re-articulates it in this journey of Zarathustra, who's going um, sort of up the mountain to God and down the mountain to the people and up and down and up and down. Um, a friend of mine, uh, ex-partner who was doing a PhD on Nietzsche was getting a lot of insights about this text in particular, that there was a musical structure and that it was actually structured because Nietzsche was an enormous fan of Richard Wagner, the composer who um, my friend told me had a cult following in Europe at the time, like a religious level following. Mm. And Nietzsche was part of the cult of Wagner. And then, you know, I was writing praising philosophical texts about him and then totally broke away and was disillusioned. I think they had a punch up over a girl or something to that effect. Highbrow, but basically. Um, so Zarathustra is written with this musicality embedded yeah. in its structure. And it's got this up and down, um, in and out of community, in and out of civilization and into nature. And this like journey of continual self-transcendence throughout the book. And so I think it's significant that Nietzsche being one of the sort of greatest, although perhaps eventually unsatisfied minds of the last few hundred years, ultimately went to art to give expression because something in the artfulness of it is more meaningfully reflective of the nature of being or the creative forces or the logos than the kind of paltry, more limited um, expression found in commandments written on tablets or, you know, 2000 years on this brilliant, more complex formulation embedded in the Christian story. Yeah, it's, I, I wanted to make a connection with that because I've noticed my my own writing becoming increasingly more poetic over time. And it's, you know, it's just articulate, trying to articulate the developmental journey that I'm on. But it's like over time, it's, it's like I can't, I can't express it properly unless I just sort of gesture to it very subtly like it's the it's the way that i'm 
gesturing to it that is the thing I'm gesturing to. That I'm uh, the the way that I'm gesturing is the thing I'm trying to gesture to. That's what I'm trying to say. And um, I, it's interesting also you brought up Terrence McKenna because I think there's also a, I mean, we, we could talk about, we could talk about psychedelics for sure. Because there's a, there's a big, the same, the same pattern um, that's happening in this death of narrative and this narrative that you previously thought was ultimately real leaves you in a meaning crisis. You don't know what's up and what's down. It's that same thing that happens, you know, it's happened to me where it's like first time I ever, you know, tried anything. It was like the things that I had built to make sense of reality, I had become identified with. And those started to break down. And in the moment of those breaking down, the things that I thought were ultimately real, I feel like I'm dying. And it's just this descent into utter chaos and hell. Like, I don't know what's happening to me. I don't know what's real. Total discontinuity with reality. This particular experience for me, though, what I found at the bottom of that descent into the, the void I could look back up and I could see the, I could see the, it, it was just like this thin layer on top of this infinite depth of void, chaos, hell. It was this thin layer of all of the things that we construct to try and not go down here. Mm. Hmm. And I and I looked at it and I saw how just fragile it was and how fleeting and how just pitiful it all was. Like this is that's what I thought was real. And in that in that place, it's like, no, the reality is here in this hellish, chaotic void somehow. It's like this is where this is what feels real right now in this moment. And in coming to accept that, suddenly I started to realize, wait a second, my dad's here too. My mom's here too. Everyone in my family is here. And I feel that, feel that connection. I realize every, every single individual that I've ever encountered 
is here. Every creature that's ever existent, existed, the flies buzzing around my head. It's like, they're here with me in this, in this void. And then it's no longer a void. And there's, there's something that you let, you let go of what you previously thought was real and you think you're dying and then you fall into what's, what's really real. And there's something about, there's a faith, there's a, the word faith keeps coming up. There's a faith that you find in that where it's the moment of surrendering all of that grasp, that sense of control. And then you realize, oh, what I thought I was standing on turned out to be hardly anything at all. And now I'm like actually standing on something and it's the, it's the recognition of the, well, for me in that moment, at least, it was like this interconnectedness, agopic interconnectedness of all things. That, that was real. And then there's like, you know, what was, what was previously hell became like this vision of heaven. Um, because I realized that it, it was like heaven encompassed hell. That's, that's the vision. It was like, it was like, Oh God, there's so much in this. And fold on itself again. Um, okay, so heaven can enfold hell. Or or in some sense, in order for process to have an eternality in it, you couldn't really have a metaphysics theology, myth, story of, of such a fixed nature that there was heaven and hell in a perpetual resting balance. And I feel like when we do this kind of playful move where we like, we bring in the biblical Christian language, but we're not actually working within that, uh, playpen we're in a different playpen we're striving to be in the playpen that is the infinite uh wonder and obscurity of of the nature of reality but it's also important what's going on between the two of us and in particular with your you know we haven't even talked about my upbringing and your upbringing, but both of us kind of being born out of a generation of 
Christian parents who saw something quite broken and tried to do something a little bit different, but still within the same kind of container. You know, my parents were Christian youth workers in the 90s and they were organizing like kind of Christian raves, you know, to get young people involved in the church. So it was like raves, but nobody's on MDMA or drinking. <laughs> and maybe the like the trance music has some Christian stuff thrown into it. But and that's kind of funny, but there's something in it about the way that Christianity is like a meme complex is operating. And it's something I totally see in my research on Islam and my understanding of Islam is that it's kind of doing something very similar, uh, which is that it kind of has this relationship to culture in which it, it sees what's going on and it pulls in in order to justify the existing structure. So you'll see a lot of interesting Christian thinkers coming into the space who are talking about what's going in the mainstream culture. They're talking about Kanye's album, Jesus is King, and et cetera, et cetera. But this, there is a defined end goal, I feel, that's motivating this. There's a kind of knowing, and the engagement with what they don't already know is somehow in, in a process of integrating it into um, and enhancing what's already there. And that's not actually the death of mm. what we're talking about. Um, the death of self, the death of the identity, not just deconstruction, just dissolution. Um, and, you know, all kinds of problems with people getting into dissolution without proper support, without um, the wisdom and relationship that can afford to like walking through that sort of eye of the needle. Um, see, I'm getting even more playful now with the, the biblical language. Um, well, it's subversive memes, you know, there, there's also something I encountered. I was telling you about this dialogue I was having a while back with a Christian guy. Um, and what came up with him was the presence of Satan as the deceiver was a very strong one. And this isn't, doesn't seem to me to be the case with a lot of Christianity now because partly because it's so hollowed out that Satan is kind of let, doesn't seem to be as present, but it's, Satan's very much present in Islam. That um, Satan shows himself as someone who's very similar to you and very kind and very tempting with all of his offers, but somehow he deviates from the true Christian message. And so there's this, you know, there's different kinds. There's Christians who are incredibly self-assured in their Christianity that it's so deep in their bones. They've never had the experience that completely 
seemed to move beyond it. That when they go out into the world, they're very comfortable, very kind and welcoming to engage with people outside of that framework. And I think there's some meaningful efforts of that going on. And then there's another kind of Christianity, which is more fearful, which is like, you who are outside, um, if you're not Christians, you're somehow doing the work of Satan. Um, so in bringing this, you know, doing this, doing this dance between our metaphysics and our lives, how is this kind of fitting in with with where you're seeing yourself in relationship to your journeying with this. Because I definitely see that what you have to say and have said here has a much more, it's not just subversive, it's, it's somehow subversive and also very deeply grounded within the, the Christian metaphysics but it's very subversive. And that didn't quite show up in your conversation with Paul yet. Obviously you're just getting mm-hmm. to know each other. You and I have talked for upwards of 10 or 11 hours, I'm sure. So. Hmm. Subversive being subversive is not the it's not subversive for the sake of being subversive that's important at the risk of like posturing myself unfairly and arrogantly it the analogy that's coming up is like a parent who sees a necessary developmental step for their child to make and knows that it's going to be difficult and um, yeah i don't i sorry i'm <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to posture myself as as the parent in that i'm i'm realizing how um, how much arrogance could be read into this, but this is the image that's coming up is um, there's a necessary developmental step that needs to happen. That's going to be painful and, and difficult, but it's like, I want to be what, a, what the parent is supposed to be in that process, which is, this agopic force holding the space for that to take place and being the, you know, helping to ground that process. So it's not a,
traumatic lasting uh, lasting traumatic experience that there's actually uh, they'll come out on the other side and be like be able to see yes that was necessary that was a necessary journey for me to take and i'm not i don't even know what the journey is that's the thing (laughs) but there's a necessity you don't know what the other person's journey is but it's I'm getting this feeling of like, okay, it's like a Christian project of community for our parents, my parents' generation, let's say. I don't know about yours, but there was a sense of moving away from the brokenness of the the traumatic context in which many, many people born in this century, you know, are born through a landscape of, of trauma is flowing into them. And they came into Christianity, some of them as something that actually went away from that into a community. And finding togetherness in the brokenness. But, and th- this is gonna link in with the parental part because there's something about the experience of you and I and a number of other people that I know who during this past year, let's say, especially with the context of COVID and people coming back to the family, we find ourselves having had access to psychedelics, having had access to certain possibilities and containers that afforded personal transformation that most of our families haven't had even a, you know, a peek at, you know, especially if you have a kid when you're really young or get tied down with something. So we're kind of coming back. It's not the, it's not the like, abandon your life as it is and go out on the pilgrimage. So, I mean, obviously the pilgrimage and the exile is important, but we're talking more about the the homecoming. And in the homecoming, there's this circumstance of coming into relationship with all the trauma that Christianity was not in its form able to actually understand, relate Mm. to, or bring resolution to. I feel the, I feel the ecstasis is quite important and something that was never quite there. Mm. I feel it's always this simulation almost. And obviously people have real experience as well. But there's this, my dad always talked about how, and he was a minister, like people felt like, oh, God was there, like God was there. Like I felt the presence of God there when we were all singing together and waving our arms, when we all gathered and laid hands on somebody, et cetera. And then when they left, God wasn't there.
and where there was ecstasis, which for the most part, I don't feel like you really do get in a lot of those contexts, especially in the Anglo-European context, there's so much emotional restriction. Like, where is it really breaking down and dissolving into dance and song, like, in a way that's not confined to Christianity, but is confined to humanity in relationship to being, you know, music. That's what it is. Um, So we've had the opportunity of some of these things. And now we're like, how do we relate to that which has come before us? And in so doing, at some moments, actually take on the parental role, which we felt that they should have played to us. We now become playing that role to them. Not in the sense of what Jordan called the bad God, the patriarch who says, don't do this because I'll punish you because we're not going to do that to our parents anyway. <laughs> it's, the, it's the loving parent who loves you and affords you the space to fuck up. And mm. communicates the truth of what they're witnessing. And that's kind of what I feel. You know, that was my experience during COVID. I felt like, like, there were moments where it was like I had stuff coming up and it was my work and my parents were supportive to me. But there were other moments where it was like their dysfunction and all that stuff that had been with them throughout their whole, you know, time in the Christian community. None of it had been addressed. My dad had attention deficit disorder his whole life. Like, and this just was not identified or like articulated at all with him being a minister in a Christian community for a long time. So it's like, great, very accepting, but there's got to be some real lack of embodied discernment about what people are actually witnessing. And you and I have talked about the disembodiment before. I can hear kid nephew in the background. They're trying to get into my room here. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, there is. I felt, I really felt the what you were saying about being coming home and being a parent to our home like that's part of this sort of i don't know hero's journey or or whatever whatever you want to call it it's like there's the the aspect of that that's the coming home and trying to um lovingly share the treasure that you've found on on the journey 
with the difficulty that that treasure is being perceived by by your home, your village as a a weapon, like a threat that's coming from the outside. Because it is. <laughs> um, like to be fair to them, it's a uh, it's gonna shake some things up. Uh, but it's necessary that it does so. And, and trying to afford coming into right relationship with home and, and in that process, home coming into right relationship with you and what you're trying to share, you have to get that right. Like that's, if you just come and you try and shove what, what you're trying to share with them in their face, it's, it's, that's, you're going to be rejected. And, um, and you're not actually sharing the thing that you want. And you're not actually sharing. <laughs> yes. Um, right. Right. So here's another, another, psychedelic related experience, which is amazing insight for me, but how do I share this? If I write about it, I like that the idea of writing, trying to write about it or talking about it, it's like, ugh, I can't, I can't do it. But in that experience, in the, in the process of having the insights, the, the, the ineffable insights, I realized if someone could see me and see the transformation that I'm undergoing, see me changed by these insights, and just relate to me then they'd they'd get it on some level and that's the only way that i can possibly share this appropriately is by being it and that by being it it's it's the the treasure is who I am. That's, that's what I'm bringing home. It's like, I've, you know, going out, slaying the dragon, finding the gold, bringing it home. That's a process that's going on in me. And the gold is the, the, who I've, who I am becoming along the way. But it's so easy to I make an idol out of that. It's so easy. I've had the same feeling of like, God, I just wish that they would 
that the circumstances would become ripe for me to share in these experiences with my mom or my dad or siblings or whatever. Um, and ultimately to the extent that it, I mean, also to the extent that it wasn't the right time, it wasn't their time, but also coming to a recognition that like, they might not experience that in their lifetime. And I still, want to comport myself with the fruits of that. And that's a beautiful thing because I don't need you to believe what I believe or to have seen what I've seen in order for us to play or jam or be present to one another. It's like humanness, you know? It's like two human beings encounter one another on the African savanna, you know, and they greet each other, not on the basis of tribe or what religious group they've come from, but just on the basic humanness. And I don't want to, you know, overblow that because of course we all have to develop through these stages and that can't be rushed. But I would playfully put a blessing on what it is that we're doing because from where I'm sitting and to bring it all the way back to the start, even before the recording, when we talked about, um, you know, sitting down at the family dinner table during this time in America, the, the marriage that is represented between red and blue is a complete fucking mess. And both parents are playing the psychic roles of um, kind of narcissistic bad parents. And we as the, we the people, you know, I'm in Berlin, but I'll be the people too. We the people, I'm subjected to it. Um, we the people are the children in the divorce in some way. This is what me and my girlfriend kind of got when we watched one of these debates as we're the children in the divorce and he's, you know, he, I don't even need to say who it is. He is brilliantly agile and sharp and is so in articulation archetypally of ego that the truth bends around him. And then he is so in articulation of the politician that you don't really know who he is. Like on the one hand, you know, it's like dad, dad is a really kind of a bad guy, but there's something attractive about him. And um, sometimes he says things which are true. And then mom 
of it here is saying everything dad says is a lie. Listen to me. Everything he says is a lie, which is exactly what happens in these narcissistic relationship dynamics. Um, it's like an attempt to so totally subvert the reality of the other um, to you. So without going down that tunnel too far, I think there's a clear further intermittent um, aspect of the chaotic symphony of right now from the personal and the family Mm. the nation state and the collective to the metaphysical layer and perhaps in future we can even be moving more between um those but i just hope that we can do all that we can do at the time that we can do it. <laughs> and there's not much more we can hope for than that. Um, and becoming in a, in, a, in a nervous, having our nervous systems become subject to a state of urgency is absolutely unhelpful. Well, that's the unfortunate reality. Uh, so, Remembering death, remembering the death of God, I think somehow will be our aid in in that in in developing that relationship to world that is oriented towards letting go, towards presencing the piece of the map that's not known, um, and maybe even growing that piece of the map to become larger and larger. Uh, until doing perhaps more humility, more wisdom, all of that good stuff. So as we are, uh, I feel drawing to a indefinite close on this experiment. Yeah. Uh, what what's present for you how unexpected has been the the nature of the conversation although we did seem to arrive right where we had wanted or needed to the, the road that so. we got there was yeah 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 I'm, I'm mindful right now of a very, very dear friend of mine who I, I thought of her when you brought up the divorced parents and that we're the children because um, her parents are divorced. And then there's this, you know, she's, there's all the, the, the hell that comes with that of trying to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we be a family? And that's the question is how, how do we be a family? Um, and, and it's interesting too, because 
conversations I've had with her, there's um, had a lot of conversations with her about death and specifically her fear of death. And so everything you were saying just then, it was like, like she was just present in my mind of like, this is so resonant with what's going on on a bigger scale here. It's like, we're dealing with divorced parents who were never really good parents to begin with. <laughs> and the path forward is going to involve the death of what we thought was God. And that's terrifying. as it should be. (laughs) (laughs) And yet we're laughing about it. (laughs) So it can't be all too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Ending on silence is how we began. Hmm. I think I think the final thing I'd want to say would be to bless the process of loving loving the children of the divorced parents in their developmental death and rebirth like like Like, it's just a prayer that wants to be said. Like, God, help me, help me love these people. And on that note, I'm going to stop the recording. It's been a wild ride, Joseph. Yeah. Looking forward to the next one. Likewise. Thank you, Jacob.